So I've had some additional time out of the office uh, these past few days, and it's just been so good uh, to spend some extra time with Katie and with the kids, and um, just really refreshing, just a, a real uh, blessing. And one thing that God's been working on my heart about, you know, at the beginning of each new year, or at the conclusion of each new year, I start thinking about goals. Anybody else kind of like that? New Year's resolutions, if you want to say it that way, or goals. And so just kind of my mind is thinking toward that end. And um, having spent extra time with my kids and my family, I've been thinking about, okay, what are some goals I should set regarding my responsibility as a father uh, for our family and, and things of that nature. And as I think about um, my responsibility as a dad, it's simultaneously like such a massive blessing and privilege, but yet such a huge responsibility. You know what I mean? And it's really sobering to think about that God has allowed Katie and I to have four children and we are God's ambassador to them. We are God's representative to them. He's called us to shape and to influence and to nurture and to train their lives. And nobody can replace what a father or a mother does to a child and, and that responsibility in a child's life. And so it's humbling to think about that. And if you're like me, I'm sure you have the same goals generally for your kids or maybe your grown kids or your grandkids now. Um, and that is that they would just love the Lord. You know, that they would be fully devoted to him, that, that they would uh, follow in his ways each and every day of, of their life. And so I've thought about this a lot, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately because of just being home and, and the new year. How do I do that? How do I nurture and train and, and raise my kids to truly love God, to, to really be devoted to him in all of his ways? How do I pass that on, if you will. And so it's sobering to think about. We're going to look at a passage here in Luke chapter 14 that doesn't necessarily have to do with parenting, doesn't necessarily have to do with a father's role to his, his child or a mother's role to her child or children. Uh, but I do think that there is application there. Um, because the reality is, if you look at the gospel of Luke from kind of a bird's eye perspective, we realize that Luke is trying to portray Jesus as the son of man. Right? He's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He took on human flesh. He had the same infirmities that we had, the temptations that we face. He went through that. He lived, in a, sacri he lived a sacrificial life, and he eventually laid down his life right, as a sacrifice. He was buried. He rose again so that we could have eternal life with him. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? And uh, the gospel is all about knowing Jesus personally as our Savior. And then once we know him personally as our Savior, to be in step with him, to walk intimately with him. It's not just about going to heaven and, and not going to hell. It's not just about saying a prayer. It's about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is amazing to think about. If you just stop for a moment and you think, wow, God wants me to have a relationship with him. That's a sobering thought. Uh, that ought to humble us, that the creator of the universe wants you uh, to relate to him and me to relate to him and have a relationship. And then not only is the gospel about knowing Christ, but it's about making him known, isn't it? And uh, we're supposed to make him known to others by preaching the gospel, witnessing, sharing our faith, things of that nature. And perhaps there's no others that are more important than those little others that are in our home, mom and dad, that we have influence over and that God has placed in our life. And really, I believe this message tonight won't just be a help to parents because you might be here tonight and you're like, Look, I don't have any kids, so don't check out. Uh, I do believe that this message can be a help um, to anybody in the room who opens their heart, to anybody who wants to get on board with God's mission, because the truth is we all propagate the gospel in our life. 
We all influence others and, and, and seek to make Christ known to people. We're all helping to transfer our faith for future generations, whether it's at the workplace or whether it's a cousin or a nephew or a niece or, or, or whatever the case may be. We're all trying to transfer a faith to the next generation. And so how do we love Jesus in a way that's worth following? So if you found your place in Luke chapter 14, I invite you to stand. Luke 14, we're going to be in verse 25. And uh, I want you to think about this with me. How do we love Jesus in a way that's worth someone coming in behind us and saying, I want what he has. I want a real kind of faith. I want that life. So Jesus says, and in verse 25 is where we're going to begin our reading, we see that there went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife. So hold on, time out. So, um, Jesus tells us to hate our mother and our father. Okay, uh, what's he, we'll make sense of this here in a moment. And, and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether ye have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king goeth to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear. Let him hear. And I encourage you tonight, if you have ears to hear, let us hear. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the wonderful time uh, this holiday season provides just to be together with family, um, just to spend quality time together, but also to be with our church family. And Lord, what a blessing it's been already to be in your house tonight amongst your people to sing songs like His Mercy is More and Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It and reflect on your amazing love that you have toward us, God. We are so thankful for all the many blessings that you've poured on our lives. And now, God, help us not to take this time for granted where we look to your word once again. And uh, Lord, help us not because of the familiarity of the passage or just the familiarity of being in church. Check out in any way, shape, or form. I pray that we would tune in to what you may have for us tonight. Lord, that we'd be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that we'd open up our hearts and our minds to whatever you may have for us tonight. Use me as your vessel. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, the context of, of Luke is really for the past several chapters, past several passages, Jesus has been incredibly divisive. Uh, he, he's been um, very divisive. He's been categorical. He's been separating unbelievers and skeptics and doubters from the true believers. He's been profiling what real faith is. He's calling out the absolute rejectors, the Pharisees, the ones that want him dead, that uh, don't want him here anymore. He's, he's been challenging the middle of the road doubters and the skeptics, and he's trying to tell him, you, you don't have all the time in the world to make this decision as to whether or not you're going to place your faith and trust in me. You have to come to a place where you believe for yourself right here, right now. And he's being pretty divisive. 
I mean, Jesus was a pretty polarizing character as he was traveling. As we read through the Gospels, people either loved him or they hated him. There were some people kind of in between, like, is this guy for real? And, and there's no other word for it. He's just drawing a line in the sand. He's being divisive. He's saying, this is what's real, uh, uh, and, and this is what is not, and you better get on the right side of truth. And so we see uh, in verse 25 that there's great multitudes. There's crowds of people following him. And from this crowd, there's some that are following him because they want to kill him. There's others who are following Jesus because they're fascinated by the miracles that he's done or they're fascinated by the parables that he's taught. Uh, they want to see him feed 5,000 people. You know, they heard about that and they want to see a miracle. They want to see something. And then there's those that are following him because they really are believing that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior. And they don't understand necessarily what his work means or what all he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing, but they're getting there. They're learning and, and they're growing and they really are pure-hearted believers. And so in that context, Jesus turns, the Bible says in verse 25, and again, he's going to be confrontational and he's going to confront us tonight, really. And, and don't you know that the truth isn't always just like pleasant and warm and fuzzy, sometimes the truth is also confrontational, right? So as much as I'd like to stand here this evening on a Wednesday night going into the new year after Christmas and say something fun and happy and exciting, sometimes, you know, we need to deal with the truth and the truth is confrontational at times. And we don't like that because I, you know, I use the illustration of like a sickness, right? We don't necessarily like to know that we're sick with something sometimes. We don't like to get the diagnosis, right? Because then we don't have to deal with it. But let's say you get a cavity, and if you don't know you have a cavity, nobody told you you had a cavity, uh, and you let that go and you don't deal with it, what happens? Things are just gonna get worse for you, right? You might have to get a root canal. You might have to have extraction or, or something else. And, and so sometimes the truth is confrontational, and we don't want the truth to confront us, and we're playing kind of a mind game. We create in our minds uh, just kind of insulating ourselves our own version of what reality is. And sometimes we can just kind of ignore what's really being said or what's really going on in our lives and just kind of hope that things blow over and, and change. But can I tell you, you can make stuff up in your mind. That doesn't mean it's true. Okay? And so we took, we looked to the teller of truth, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we say, what does the teller of truth tell us? What does truth say is true? And so in verse 26, this is what the truth said. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother. Now, we use that word hate very strongly today, don't we? I mean, it's kind of a buzzword in our culture today. Um, you know, don't hate, don't discriminate, um, none of that. And so Jesus here, the context is not literally to hate somebody, okay? We have to understand this before we really die in, um, because quite frankly, as Christians, we're told to love quite often, right? And God is love. Jesus is love. He commands us to love one another. He, he instructs us to love our families and so on, and we could go on and on about that. But this is a contrast. This is a comparative of loves, if you will. So rather than saying hate, maybe for our modern day vernacular, we should say uh, love less, Okay? Love less. If any man hate not, or if any man wouldn't love less his father or his mother or his wife and children and brother and sisters, yea, and even his own life also. Look at verse 26. What's that next phrase? Church, can you read it out loud with me? He cannot be my disciple. So on the surface, what Jesus is saying is outrageous. Like, if, if you just believed that Jesus was a good man, that he was just a prophet, that uh, he was just some fascinating teacher or, or a good man or something like that, to hear a man say that, somebody in this crowd, that would have angered them. Uh, that, that would have enraged them a little bit because what he's saying is if you're going to follow me, if you're really going to follow me, if you're really going to be devoted to me, 
well then it's gonna require, it demands to produce a kind of love that is supreme in your life. In other words, it is preeminent in your life. Everything else is a lesser love in light of your love for me. And so this sounds so hard. <laughs> this sounds so divisive, so outrageous, so over the top, so difficult, so oppressive. Like, what is Jesus really asking? But by the time that we're done tonight, I think you'll agree with me that it only makes sense what Jesus says here. It only makes sense uh, what he's trying to get after in this passage. If, if Jesus is God, then it only makes sense that you and I that we, for our family and everybody else that we love, that Jesus gets the greatest, the highest, the most supreme level of love in our life compared to anybody or anything else. And here's the key statement I kind of want you to get as we go through this passage and really with the lens of handing our faith off to future generations and loving Jesus in a way that's worth following, I want you to understand this, that every generation needs first generation faith. Every generation needs first-generation faith. And it almost sounds like an oxymoron. Every generation of first-generation faith. Here's what I'm saying. It's impossible for me as a dad to forcibly transfer my faith onto my children. Right? It's not effective for me to try to forcibly legislate Christianity into their little hearts. It just doesn't work that way. And people have tried to put their children in a box and control them and demand that they be Christians in their lives and they live in such a way that the Christian life, that they love God and show that. But frankly, church, Christianity is not in danger of extinction. We understand this tonight. Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So God is sovereign. The church is in his hands. The church is not in danger of extinction. Yet all of us have this significant role to play in handing off our faith to the next generation, each and every one of us, whether we're a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, we're all taught in scripture to have a kind of faith, a kind of love that is transferable, transferable. By the way, the way we transfer, transfer as Christians is really important. And oftentimes we get off track in how we do that. And again, this applies to everybody in the room, whether you're single or you're, you're married or whether you're young or old, whether you have a young family with small children or a grown family with grown kids, grandkids, wherever you are, you are called by God to hand off your faith to the next generation and to transfer what Christ has done in your heart to another heart. And the way that you hand it off cannot be a forced thing. No matter how much Christianity or culture or authors try to say you can force it onto somebody, the truth is that is ineffective. It's not gonna work. And yet that's not biblically Christianity at all anyways, because Jesus was not a revolutionary politically or, or socially. Uh, uh, he's not about establishing a Christian state, right? That's right? We understand this tonight. And sometimes we get confused because we as Christians love our country and there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to understand God's mission is not necessarily to elect Christians into office. I think that's great, I think that's awesome. But God's mission isn't about having a Christian government. God's mission is not about having a civil society where everything is Christian. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But that's not necessarily how Christ works. Our goal is a returning king named Jesus. And, and the Bible tells us to submit to every ordinance uh, of man. The Bible tells us that the powers that be are ordained of God and that God governs the affairs of men and that the powers that are established 
God is in control of that. So our mission is not to force lives into the compliance of a civil structure. Our mission is to share a message about a man who could change a heart and change a life. And one heart at a time, Christianity is to be transformative. It's to be a transformative relationship. It's not, again, a political structure or a power structure or a civil structure. Those are all good and fine. And Christianity impacts those things. That's good and fine. But we cannot force our faith on anybody, especially not our children, especially not our little ones. Uh, There's this illustration this news story that I came across as I was studying for this message. Uh, it was something that was published by NPR uh, called Radio Lab, and it was a story some time ago that they entitled The Girl Who Did Not Exist. Maybe you've heard this before. It was in national headlines. It was a young lady by the name of Alicia Faith Pennington, and she's now 26 or 27 years old, but several years ago she made, she made national news. It was all over social media. It was all over the major news platforms. It was a big deal. And uh, her story went something like this. She grew up in a very controlled environment, a restrictive home environment uh, in Texas. And and a caveat here, I don't know her family. I don't know all the details of how they raised her. Um, And I'm not saying that what they did was right or wrong. I'm not saying that I agree with their values or not. But um, I'm just going to tell you kind of the high things that I saw from this story. And so please don't think I'm passing on judgment or I'm trying to say anything that I'm not saying. Okay? Got it? Okay. Um, So uh, this is kind of what happened here. Um, This family went kind of out of bounds with some extremes of Christianity. Um, She grew up off the grid entirely. She was born in the home. There was no record of her birth. Her parents never got her a birth certificate. There was no doctor's records. There were no identifiers of her age uh, or anything like that. She was schooled at home. She was never once taken to the doctor, never once a pediatrician or anything like that. She grew up not allowed to watch any kind of uh, media, not allowed to go shopping, not allowed to be on the phone, not allowed to use a computer, not allowed to do a lot of stuff, not even allowed to get a driver's license. And essentially, her home became her prison. Her home became her prison. Now, I am all for boundaries, and I am all for restrictions and protecting your child's heart, but there are extremes, would we agree? And uh, what they did to her heart, we'll see here how it unfolds. The idea is they were trying to segregate her from all of the mess that's in the world and force feed her Christianity. They were trying to create an environment. They were trying to sanitize their environment, if you will. And But what they forgot is that they still live in a sin-sick world that's full of mess. And you can sanitize the environment as best as you want to, but the world is still going to creep in at times. All right, uh, Because you live in it. It's what's in the world. Even the most sanitized environments are still filled with the same sin that is all over the world. And so it's a, de- it's a deceptive thought because if we as parents think that we're gonna isolate and segregate our kids, it sounds good to a degree. It does, and I think it's good to a degree. But when Alicia turned 18, her grandparents were coming over the house and she contacted them and said, I'm going home with you. I'm getting out of this house. I wanna live my life the way I wanna live it. Her grandpa said, well, you need to talk to your parents about that. You can't just do that. So she did have a conversation with her parents. They denied her to be able to go. Her parents came over and when her grandparents were about to leave, Alicia ran into the car and locked herself in the car. And you know, the grandparents are standing there kind of in a pickle, like, what do we do? You know, because we want to support the grown parents who are, you know, the, the father and mother of this child, but we also see the situation that she's in. And so the grandparents were kind of in an awkward situation. And uh, eventually they got into the car, the parents did, they had a conversation with her. They couldn't get her to remove herself from the car, so they just said, Okay, so then Alicia moved and went on with her life with her grandparents. 
And uh, she tried to get some forward momentum in her life, tried to go get her driver's license, tried to uh, uh, get a job, tried to do all these things, but she was denied. She was hitting dead end after dead end after dead end. Couldn't get going because there was no identification of her. They literally didn't, like, she didn't have any kind of personal identification for which people could draw from to give her a driver's license, to give her a job. And so she was just getting dead end to dead end. And she said, I'm an American citizen but nobody knows it and nobody believes it. I was born in this country. And it's kind of a sad story. And uh, at the end of the story, she put her story out on YouTube, of course. You know, everybody has a platform nowadays. And it went viral. I mean, it was all over everything. And um, the basically, Texas governor made a new law which allowed her to be able to get jobs and all this kind of stuff. But one thing that I don't know from the end of the story is if she rejected her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She was raised in a Christian home. No doubt these were well-meaning parents who were just trying to protect their daughter from you know, the craziness of this world that we live in. But one thing I don't know is if she rejected the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ because being insulated in a restrictive and somewhat regressive and oppressive self-segregated environment is not a good representation of what the true gospel is. We understand this tonight. And so I don't, I don't know what your view of Christianity is. I don't know what her view of Christianity is, but I know the biblical view of Christianity is that of a thriving, joyful, grace-filled, abundant life relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not one that's to be self-segregated or isolated from the world. In fact, Jesus puts us in the world to be salt and light in this world. And so segregate yourself thinking you're sanitizing your own little world and your own little family. No, you're not. We're wrong when we do that. We're just retracting salt from the world that Jesus wanted to sprinkle and make a difference in. And for your children, here's what happens. This is what happened to my oldest sister. Um, I saw it happen firsthand. Is your children for a colossal epic moment in their life, they're either gonna run for their lives thinking I'm getting out of this prison known as Christianity, or they're gonna run to Jesus. But they're gonna come to a place where they're gonna decide Do I want to get out of prison or do I want freedom? And so I say all this church family to say, if you make Christianity a prison, well then you ought to expect your children to run for their lives. That's just kind of how it works. But if you make, uh, biblically speaking, young people, and, and, and I hope young people, you hear this, that Christianity is the most wonderful, most sensible, the most rational, the most factually validated philosophy and approach to all of life. It really is. Christianity is the belief system that brings the heart not into bondage, but into freedom. Christianity is the teaching, the truth, that brings the heart into a relationship with God through Jesus, into a love that not only he desperately longs for, but you desperately long for, and you don't even know it. Christianity makes sense. And so if you're a guest here tonight because you're in town with family and you're investigating Christianity, or maybe you're a young person and you're investigating if all this is real and all this is true, I suggest you rub shoulders with some of the gray heads in here, some people who've been walking with the Lord for a while. I mean, really walking with God and have a conversation with them and then, of course, open up the Bible for yourself and read it for yourself and come to your own conclusions. I'll tell you what the epidemic that's happening in Christianity is, is people don't read the Bible for themselves. (laughs) And so people are relying on a preacher or an adult Bible class teacher or whatever it is in between, and they're relying on a man or or somebody to to provide their spiritual growth, and God wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants me to have a relationship with him. Like, the Bible didn't give, or God didn't just give the Bible to the preacher, or to, he gave it to you too. He gave it to me. 
And he wants us to get into it. And so I'm thankful. Um, Pastor Durrell, you know, his leadership, he's not the kind of guy who's going to get up here and say, let me do the thinking for you, right? We're in a church where I'm so thankful. Um, he encourages, and everybody else who preaches here encourages, no, think for yourself. I'm going to present what the Bible says, but you draw your conclusions from the Bible as well. You get into it for yourself. And he communicates in such a way that he doesn't say, let me think for you. I'm thankful for that. Just a little side note. But we say, open your mind. Open your heart to what God has for you. God wants to speak to you. I tell the teenagers all the time, anytime we open up this book, anytime we open up the Bible, God wants to speak to you. It's crazy. It's such a blessing. So let's not make Christianity the prison. And Jesus is not making Christianity a prison here when he says, if you don't hate your mom, your dad, your sister, or your brother, and if you don't bear your cross, then you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not trying to be a regressive, restrictive harsh, oppressive God. He's not. How do we live a life that's transferable? We already established we can't force it. Parents of young children, I can speak from experience here now. Um, yes, we're going to nurture them. Yes, we're going to discipline them. Yes, we're going to train them. Yes, we are the authority. But by the time they're 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, that kind of parenting style doesn't necessarily work. And you can't force them to love Jesus, right? You have to win them to love Jesus. And there's a difference between forcing them and winning them. Everybody that grew up in a Christian home that kept their faith, somewhere along the way, somebody won them to Jesus. Somebody convinced them that it was worth it, that Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to their lives. And somehow they came into an interaction with Jesus, and he won their hearts, and they are in love, and they tasted of his love. Just like the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I believe having spent many years um, in family ministry, you know, I've been able to serve as the children's pastor, the young adults pastor, now the youth pastor, which is kind of weird. Um, but I can tell you that this generation and the generation coming behind them are starving for truth. They're starving for it. They don't necessarily just want to know what's right and wrong. They want to know why it's right and why it's wrong. And they're looking to your example. They're looking to my example. They're looking to the future of your family. They're looking to the future of this church. The future of our church is dependent upon the example, the faith that we lead and we live before them. And so I will tell you, when it comes to the branding of Christianity, entertainment-driven Christianity doesn't work. There's so many churches today that are just simply trying to entertain. And Hollywood does a better job, so young people aren't after that. <laughs> Traditional or even formal Christianity, and hear me, that's, that's restricted to liturg uh, a liturgical kind of structure that focuses on the externals. That doesn't work. Young people run away from that. Duplicitous Christianity, I act one way on Sunday or on Wednesday night, but a different way the rest of the week. That doesn't work. Young people see right through that. Authoritarian, moralistic, performance-based Christianity doesn't work. Why do you do that? Because the guy up there is standing behind, he said not to do it. Well, that doesn't make sense. And they're thinking, I'm going to think for myself. I'm going to live life the way I want to live. Why do you care what he thinks? Graceless comparative Christianity, where Christians just come and kind of compare with each other, kind of compete with each other. Young people, the next generation, doesn't want anything to do with that. Divisive, contentious church life, they don't, walk, they, don't, they don't want that. They walk away from that kind of a church. Politically themed churches. Churches where the preacher preaches, who's running for office all the time. And, and, and young people go, just teach me the Bible. Like, I just want to know what God says. Uh, he's the one who's in control anyways because they see right through all of that. 
And the problem is some young people are hitting a wall and they've come to this crisis in their belief where they say, well, my parents always said this, or they always believed that, but I'm starting to believe this. And they see the hypocrisy, or they see the, my church is always having angry business meetings, or, you know, whatever. And they walk away because it just isn't real. And so allow me, as a millennial, <laughs> uh, I'm a different generation. The world has changed. Don't you know it? The world has changed. Um, as a millennial family pastor who has studied Gen Z and analyzed Generation Alpha, which is the one coming up after them, uh, which this, that's part of what my responsibility requires. I feel like I need to know kind of how this generation thinks. The cry of this generation's heart, I can tell you, spiritually or non-spiritually, is simply this. Show me something that's real. Show me something that's real, that's authentic. That's worth following after. So the question tonight is how do you and I love Jesus in such a way that we convince them that it's worth following? Whether they're this big or this big or Ezra this big, right? (laughs) How do we convince them? How do we have a faith that's transferable? Number one, I want you to see this. Real faith produces radical love. And I'll hasten. I see the time. Brother Jeremy Jones already warned me to go short tonight, so... We need to do that in honor of him, okay? But real faith produces radical love. This is what Jesus is saying in verses 26 and 27. If you're going to come to me, there's a love that's going to grow in your heart. It should grow in your heart that supersedes all other loves. And can I tell you, the best way for you and I to love others is to love Jesus best. And when you and I love Jesus best in our lives, we will love others better. Dad, you keep getting constantly frustrated and angry with your kids. You know how you fix that? Love Jesus more and love him more and wake up the next day and love him more. Moms, you feel overwhelmed. You feel like, you know, I don't know how all this is going to pan out. Is all this labor in vain? Well, you keep loving Jesus more. You keep loving him more and you'll love those kids better. The best and greatest way to love anybody else on planet Earth is to love your Savior, your Creator, your God first and most. Loving vertically is a precondition of being able to uh, truly and effectively love horizontally right? So what Jesus is demanding is actually totally reasonable and and totally rational. If he was just a a man, if he was just a religious teacher, a religious founder, a church leader, and he said, love me most, that would be kind of outrageous. But this is love personified. This is God. This is love. He is the one who authored love. And he's essentially saying, if you don't love me, then you're not capable of truly loving anybody else, right? Audrey, come on up here real quick, okay? I'm going to illustrate for you real quick. So this is my six-year-old, Audrey. Say hi to everybody. Hi. Okay. So we often think of relationships in terms of two, right? Like me and Audrey, this is my daughter. I love her. She loves me, right? Love is never just involving two people. It's a trinity. It involves God as well. Because if I don't love God most of my life, then I'm going to do a terrible job at loving her the way that I should. But if I'm loving Jesus as best I know how, and I'm putting effort toward that, you know what's going to happen? The natural outflow of my life and my parenting is I'm going to love her effectively. I'm going to love her more. And I may even like her, too. (laughs) Parents, do you like your kids? That's a whole other message. We love them, don't we? But do we like them? All right? And so God has to be involved. If I'm going to love you or or somebody else in my life, I could use the same illustration with my wife. 
You know, I'm not going to love her as best as I could if I don't love God most. It starts with him. It's a trinity. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying. <laughs> don't fall off. He's saying you need to love me first and best. And when you do, your other relationships, other people are going to be attracted to that. You're going to have a faith that's transferable. Because this was a multitude of people. Come on over here with me. This was a multitude of people, right? There were some people in the crowd who trusted in Christ. They thought, okay, he's the Savior. There's others who are doubting. There's some who are on the fence. There's some that want to kill him. And he's saying, how do we reach these people? What's the message of the gospel? Reach others. You know how you do this, disciples? By having a real love for me. People want something that's real. People want something that's authentic. So mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever you're influencing in your life. You could be a teenager influencing a younger cousin or a younger brother or sister. Does your love for Christ really show them that all this is real? That's the question tonight, because a real faith, it produces a radical kind of love. Good job. You can go take a seat. She did a good job, didn't she? Yeah. All right. So let's move on. Real faith produces a radical kind of love, but real faith also produces a rational purpose. A rational purpose. Look at verse 27. Jesus begins to say now, count the cost, right? Or 28. Wait, where is it? Somewhere in there. <laughs> he says, count the cost, right? And we've all heard messages like this. We've all heard messages like, count the cost. It, it costs so much, you know, it costs so much to follow Jesus. And, and you better sacrifice everything for Jesus because that's what he demands. We've all heard that and we all leave church going, wow, that is awesome. I can't wait to give up everything for God. No, that's not what we do, right? You hear it and you leave and you go, wow, what an oppressive savior I have. Uh, what a harsh taskmaster. I don't know what Jesus meant when he said his burden is light and his yoke is easy. But man, that's got to be the heaviest message I ever heard. And there's some that walk away because that's how, they, that's how they hear that. That's how they hear it. But I can tell you that's the wrong context of what Jesus is saying here. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is the one who said count the cost. Think about who's saying count the cost. Okay? It's kind of like if I were to come up to you and I were to say, hey, do you want a boat? Right? Just randomly came up to you and said, hey, I have a really nice boat I want to give you. Do you want a boat? You would probably be like, what are you talking about? You know? And uh, I pull out this little toy boat from our bathtub that my kids play with. And I'm like, I need you to sacrifice everything in your life, your job, your possessions, your cars, your house, everything. And if you do, I'll give you this toy boat. Right? You'd look at me and you'd go, dude, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, you're a loony. You, you're out of your mind, right? If I were to say it's a toy boat. But if I were to say, no, I've got a $35 million yacht. It's the nicest yacht you could ever imagine. I will give it to you if you just give up your house and your car and your possessions. Chances are you'd be like, well, I could take the yacht and just, I mean, if worse comes to worse, just rebuy everything I once had. You know, I could sell the yacht and get everything I had and then some probably, $35 million. So you'd probably say, okay, sure right? And I think sometimes we look at this as Jesus is giving us a toy boat. <laughs> He's saying, look, I, I want you to sacrifice everything in your life. I want you to love me supremely. And, and here's this toy boat for you. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, count the cost. Count what you're going to give up. Not what you're going to give up, but what you are giving up when you give your life to Jesus. Does that make sense? And so $35 million yacht doesn't really compare to what Christ has in store for those who really give their life to him. 
But I'm just saying that's kind of the comparison of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying your life could be so much greater. Your life could be filled with so much purpose if you would just learn to give up and stop holding on to those things. Stop trying to find your joy and your career success or if people like you or not. Or, you know, if you have nice clothes or nice things, those are all good. But won't we be honest tonight that our focus focuses on those things all too often, much more than our focus is on Christ and what he wants us to do with our lives. He's saying, look, if you're going to follow me, count the cost, not in terms of what you're going to lose, but in terms of what you're missing out on. Count the cost. And he says, what kind of builder goes into building some kind of structure without first planning and organizing and seeing if they can afford it and if they have all the materials to do it? It's ridiculous if they start a project without doing that. Or a king who goes to war without first being consulted by others and, and seeking counsel and, and seeing how many men he has. It would be ridiculous. And my point is the, rational, the rationale of this makes total sense unless you have a t- small toy boat kind of savior. And But we don't have a small toy boat kind of savior, do we? We don't. Everything in our lives is so grand and so wonderful, and Jesus is demanding this little toy boat. Then you're going to look at this passage, and you're going to go, no way, Jesus. No way. But if Jesus is the creator of the world, which he is, who created your heart and gave you the capacity to enjoy the things he's blessed you with already, and you see everything you have is a gift from God's grace, and he says, follow me, and you truly count that cost, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And so we look at count the cost and we forget who's saying it. And Jesus in this passage talks about bearing your cross. That doesn't sound like a fun purpose, does it? Right? We were just talking to the teenagers a few weeks ago, looking at the life of Joseph and Mary and and how that whole situation, have you ever looked at that situation and just wondered, why did God do it this way? Like he could have done it some other way, but why did he inconvenience Joseph and Mary and put their reputation on the line? and, And why did he go about it this way? He was trying to teach us that we need to bear our cross. You see, does, does counting the cost and following Jesus include some suffering? Absolutely. Does it include some suffering and some hardship? Yes. Does it require us to embrace inconvenience? Sure. But does it also involve a resurrection and a victory and a blessing? Yes. And so Jesus says, look at your options. Count the cost like a guy going to war. And the reason I use rational purpose here is because it takes some thinking. It takes some logic. Count the cost. Look, do the math. Look at the numbers. Figure out how wonderful I am. Look through the scripture. I'm a good God. But so many people live just going from one thing to the next, ADD, one relationship to the next, one escapade to the next, one career to the next, one interest to the next, constantly reinventing themselves. And I'll tell you, church, we can reinvent ourselves, spend our time 50, 60, 70 years trying to reinvent ourselves, but Jesus is standing there saying, hey, why don't you just do what I'm asking you to do and be who I created you to be, and you'll experience a life far greater than you could have ever worked up or imagined. And when we, when we love Jesus in that way, where we realize, man, this is rational, it makes sense, I'm tapping into my purpose, it's going to be a kind of faith that the next generation looks on and says, that's real, I want that. And so real faith produces a radical love, it produces a rational purpose, and lastly, it produces remarkable flavor. <laughs> I kind of like that. Um, look at verse 34. He says, salt is what? Salt is good. Okay, are you still with me? We're almost done. We've heard this taught and preached many ways before. I'm sure you've heard all of the different reasons for salt, right? All of the benefits that salt provides, that it was used for commerce back in that day for money. It was used as a preservative. It was used so it could heal. But what is Jesus talking about here when he says salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor? So is he talking about the value of salt? No. Is he talking about the healing power of salt? 
No. Is he talking about the preserving nature of salt? No. Savor. He's talking about the taste, right? What does salt do? I know we have a lot of non-salt people in our church, okay? So I'm speaking to a crowd who's like, I don't, I don't even do salt, you know? But I, I like salt, okay? I like sugar, and if I die young, I died happy, okay? Mark my words. So salt is good. He's saying because what does salt do? You sprinkle a little bit on. It doesn't dramatically change the taste, but it brings out the taste, right? It makes it better. And so Jesus is saying... When you follow me and you truly love me, here's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying, you're being a tasty kind of Christian that's being sprinkled on this tasteless world and you're making Christianity look a lot more attractive and a lot more flavorful, right? That's, that's exactly what he's saying. It takes something good and it makes it better. That's what salt does. Um, so when Christian is salty, not salty in 21st century words, right? But salty, when a Christian loves Jesus and is engaged in a purpose where he counted the cost, he's following him in discipleship, it makes Christianity and all of life more tasty. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't actually verbally share the gospel with people, but it makes them listen to you a whole lot easier when they see that your life backs up your message and your life is really flavorful. This is the kind of person that has an abundant kind of joy and a spirit-filled kind of passion for life. I'm doing what I'm doing because I've been saved by a wonderful, perfect Savior. I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm on mission for Him. I wake up on Monday morning, I can go to my office, I can go to my cubicle, I can go into that world that is saltless. And you know when you go into your office or when you go to your workplace, they're not singing what we sang tonight, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. They're not singing His mercy is more, praise the Lord, His mercy is more. And sometimes I think we can go into the workplace kind of like a victim, like, like poor pitiful me in this miserable world and um, you know, poor pitiful me, I'm a Christian. That's a really convoluted way of thinking about it. I'll say that. Instead of seeing ourselves as a grain of salt that God's placed in that station or that office or out in the field, just a grain of salt to sprinkle some taste on that tasteless environment. And Jesus is saying, that's your purpose. That's what I want you to do. That's what I've asked you to do. You won't make it attractive, but you will show it to be attractive, right? You show the taste of the Savior. And so I submit to you, church family, that's the only kind of Christianity that's transferable. Um, I grew up in a home where my parents were not perfect, okay? My kids are being raised in a home that is far from perfect. But I can tell you this, I was raised in a home where I had no doubt that my mom and dad loved God. No doubt. It was never a question if we would be at church on Sunday or Wednesday or on a holiday. It was never a question. Like, I knew that we would be there. Yes, my dad said and did some things. My mom said and did some things. But I knew this, that they unequivocally loved the Lord more than anything else in their life. I saw my dad say no to some pay raises. I saw him, I saw him say no to some opportunities that he had to have more success, if you will all because he had a real kind of faith. And I'm telling you, I don't know if I'd be where I am today if I didn't have somebody in my life who won me to Jesus that way. And I'm telling you tonight, there's people in your life that God has given you as a parent, as a grandparent, as a brother, a sister, a college student, whatever you may be, um, God's placed people in your life for the gospel's sake, that you would win them to him, that not only you would know Jesus in a greater way, but they would know him in a greater way, in a more intimate way. Life is so much bigger than us, isn't it? 
Life is so much bigger than me, so much bigger than you. It's about a lost and dying world all around us. And may us in 2023, may we resolve, may we make a goal. Man, I'm going to be somebody who loves Jesus in such a way that others looking on may say, it's worth it. It's real. I want it. God help us with that. Heavenly Father, thank you for...